all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 195 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the ARP 290 episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that the there is a pair a pair of galaxies uh and it is called the ARP 290 pair of galaxies and one of the galaxies just happens to be called IC 195 and with that little bit of galactic ARP 90 290 Knowledge. I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Tired Tim, that you could say, or burnt out Tim, somebody else could say as well. I will not be a person who says either of those things. So, but I will be. But I will be. Um, you know, in in accord, Matt, because I too am tired. The accord, Matt. I will be in accord when we're when we're in one accord. We're all in accord together. Not the car, but the actual meaning of the word. Well, I hope I'm never in an accord. Is an accord a good car? I mean, you never really hear too much about accords you, that I, often. I can't. I don't think. I truly don't think I've ever been in an accord. I have been uh, the vehicle anyway. I've been in the Prelude, the Honda Prelude. I've been in a CRX. I've been um, who hasn't been in a Civic, right? Um, and um, I've been in a in the the Pilot. I think Honda does the Pilot. And um, yeah, that's I think that's all the Honda vehicles I've ever been in. So you've never been in an Accord on an any. Particularly, uh, okay, what's more ands to get you all tongue-tied while saying it? In an accord on any unfathomable... Now, that doesn't work. Unfathomable just kind of runs off the tongue (laughs) unless you have a lisp of some sort. Then that could... I don't know. I suppose... I mean, you know, if you're just going for a tongue twister... You know, you just go always go to the old standby of how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if woodchuck could chuck wood, and then the answer to that is about as much wood as woodchuck could chuck if woodchuck could chuck wood. Okay, well then, then do that. Do that one with... real quick, and then now we've got our tongue twisters out of the way. No, it has to be in accord theme. I don't know. Hurried Harry in a Hyundai and not a Honda because uh, it's an accord. I don't know what. I don't know. <laughs> Well, Matt, I, I got to tell you something. If it's okay, if I'm free to tell you something, sure. Hey, I spent this weekend in Oklahoma City uh, taking care of my dad. Uh, he had a minor surgery, nothing major, so I was just doing some good son duty. Very uneventful. So please, please, I don't have anything to contribute this week. Favor me with things that you need to tell me. I will say this. And not this only, but L.A. kids cannot handle their goddamn drugs. I was wondering what that meant earlier today <laughs> when I saw, or yesterday, whenever it was that I saw that. I was wondering what was going on. Uh, so favor me with, regale me even, with why you had to put that out into the ether. 
Well, because I, okay, so I posted, tweeted it, whatever. And it, it was because I, I, I went to a music festival out here in LA. We have something called FYF, uh, Fuck Yeah Fest. You get an eclectic group of bands that play there, mo- mainly on like the indie dance kind of vibe, really. Like uh, the headliners yesterday were LCD, uh, L- I want to say LCDC, but LCD Sound System. Grace Jones was another headliner. I mean, I even saw George, oh, shit, not George Candy, uh, George... Takei? Uh, no, 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 singer, <laughs> singer, singer, singer. You're trying to say George Takei can't sing. George, How dare I'm you sure sing. George Takei can sing. How much singing can I George Takei sing? I figured, I mean, okay, well, you're sitting there saying LCDC, right? And then I, I was waiting, instead of Gracie Jones, I was waiting for Nora Jones. And then you're trying to go with George... I, I just figured maybe we could mess up all of them, right? That would be... Uh, well, the George Great guy, fun. he sings that song, the Changes song, I'm Going Through Changes. I'm going through changes. But in a more soulful voice, he performed, and that was fun. He was the only, like, funky dude playing. And Moby, Moby did a DJ set in the club area. So you have, like, four or five, I think five different stages, and uh, various types of bands play at each stage. And so, of course, being in L.A., and the beautiful weather, you're going to have a lot of people doing shit. And I wasn't going to, I mean, I don't do that crap, like, you know, take ecstasy or drop acid at a freaking music festival, because you never know exactly what can go down at a music festival. So I just opt out for Red Bull, water, and the occasional toke of the pipe, or toke of the toke of the joint, or something like that, and so I went by myself, and that was the plan, there's a, there's a band that I love, it's one of those bands where you were probably introduced to them high, therefore, every time you see them, you have to, you have to be high. So, so what you're saying is, though, is that you did not strip down to the waist, and in black marker, write, will suck dick for some K. You did not write that all over your chest because... Please tell me you did that. <laughs> no, I have seen it at a concert. <laughs> because, as you say, it's not just L.A. kids. These kids, just just replace the word L.A. with these. These kids need to handle their goddamn drugs. And they can't. They can't. I, like, so. I don't know. Maybe things were different when... I, I, it's weird, but I've never seen it this bad. Maybe because I was, I chose to be sober the whole time and therefore, and I was by myself. So I was able to people watch more. I don't know. But anyways, the band that I wanted to go see, and I was planning on smoking a little bit too, is called Tame Impala. They've been around for seven, eight years, but they've been big in the U.S. for maybe five years or so. And I remember seeing them back when they opened up for a band called MGMT and, they were the weird band that opened for them. Like, none of the girls liked them. They weren't cool. They were playing, like, psychedelic rock, but it was great psychedelic rock. And then all of a sudden, two albums ago, they just exploded. So they're huge here in L.A., in over in New York. They're big. But I think they mainly appeal to the West Coast people and the New York crowd especially. So I went thinking, I'm just going to be around a lot of stoners there are people who are going to be enjoying the show. Certainly, no moshing is going to happen. And I tell you what, what I found out is that what you would think of like a Metallica concert in the late 80s, early 90s, where you would think moshing would be going down at a Metallica concert, that doesn't happen now. All those people, that type of person, 
is now moshing at an indie dance concert. And it's fucking weird. So you have people that are tripping out. You have people rolling. You have people that are just stoned that just want to stand in place and bob their head and jam out. All of this is kind of mixing together, so it just creates one big cluster. So I'm standing there, and everybody's like all pushed together, and uh, it's before the concert. I got a pretty good spot, because this was one band that I wanted to be pretty close for. And so they're playing the main stage, so there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people all over the place. I nudged up right next to this couple. The guy standing next to me, his girlfriend's kind of in front of him. A couple other people are in front of me, and we were all kind of talking. And so I became kind of friendly with the guy and the girlfriend next to me. Like, we were talking about the concert and what shows were you going to. Do you love Tame Impala? How long have you been listening to him? Yada, 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 yada. And so 15, 20 minutes before the show starts, I knew I'm not going to have time to, you know, whip this baby out during the show. So I whipped that little baby out. Before the show, 15, 20 minutes beforehand, I start, you know, doing my thing, and then I offer it like a friendly festival goer should do. I offer it to the people that I've been chatting with. And they accept, and the girl said, would you want to smoke more later on? I was like, yeah, sure, sounds great. She's like, great, because I, I brought some a little something also. Perfect. And so the show begins, and of course, right when the first song comes on, there's the mad rush, people pushing you further, closer to the stage, and me and my little group, we all kind of stay together. And so once the feelings, I should say, kind of set in, I was planted firmly, I was rooted in my territory, and I was rocking out. As all this was going on, as I was dodging people's heads, swinging back and forth, you know, keeping them from, like, hitting me in the face, there's a woman with this huge-ass backpack on. Huge-ass backpack. She looked like a goddamn turtle human. A turtle human. And maybe at the time, she kind of did look like a turtle human. I don't know. But she, or the backpack was nuzzling against my gut, and every time she would hop up and down, it, was, it would lift up my shirt constantly. And so I was kind of having to deal with that for, you know, for a little while. So after like maybe 30 minutes of trying to deal with that woman and finally get her to maybe move over a little bit, I suddenly feel a finger going into my back pocket of my pants. It's like, what the hell is going on? And then I kind of look around and I don't see a finger, but it's like, okay, well, maybe somebody is just kind of like leaning up against me. And so I start feeling other weird stuff around my buttocks area. And I'm just thinking people are just leaning up against me. It's just so packed. And then I start hearing some chatter behind me. And after a song stops playing, I I start hearing bursts of laughter. And as the show went on, or as the show progressed, I start hearing, Well, you just won the molestation award for this evening, Cynthia. What the fuck are you talking about? And then as the show goes on, I start feeling more fingers and weird-ass shit kind of like touching me in, in the back pocket area. And I again, I look around and all I see is this Asian dude and his girlfriend right behind me. And so in front of me, the turtle human woman comes back with her backpack and she's like molesting me in the front with her Jan sports. And then I have this Asian couple, one of them named Cynthia, I guess, like fingering my my pant pockets the entire time. And to make it all worthwhile in some super twisted way, there's a song that they play that kind of uh, that 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 appears throughout. I guess, the set throughout their show via transitions and whatnot. And eventually the song kind of builds up you know, until this big climax. 
really fun psychedelic rock. And as that's kind of going on, I'm super getting into it. I'm excited. I know what the words are going to be whenever that moment happens. And then right when that moment happens, and this is after, I probably should have jumped into this. Uh, <laughs> so before that, you know, the moment happens, that's when, you know, the couple have already pulled out their uh, weed thing that they had and they offered it to me first. And so I took one giant drag and it's like, you know, I'm good. You guys have fun with this. Uh, you know, you guys continue smoking. I'm, I'm, I'm good for right now. And so then we go back to, you know, the song kind of gets up to the climactic point, And then suddenly I feel somebody like hitting my arm. And then I feel like these droplets or something. And I hear this loud cough and I look over and the girl who's you know was in front of her boyfriend just looks over at me and just the shit just flies out of her mouth and hits me on the arm on the face and her eyes just turn black just black and she just falls to the ground and i'm just looking at her and i look back up to her boyfriend or fiance whatever who the hell he was and he's not doing anything he's just watching the concert still in the back of my head I couldn't help but wondering, and, and this, of course, is I'm trying to figure out what's going on, if this guy's going to do anything with her. In the back of my mind, I just couldn't help thinking that, it, am I next? Like, what did I just ingest that, that made this girl, I don't know if she OD'd or passed, I don't know what the hell's going on. So we get her up, and I'm telling the guy, it's like, man, we got to get her, we're very close to the main aisle, we got to get her out of here, we got to get her out of here. And the entire time... He wouldn't do anything. He's just watching the concert. He's looking at me, just saying, oh, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. And then the people next to me were like, no, dude, we're taking her now. And so we all just kind of grabbed her and kind of moved her to the side. And luckily, she, you know, she was fine. The guy ended up going with her. But he kept saying, like, pleading with the security people, like, oh, you don't have to take her. She'll be fine. They're like, no, she might die. We, we have to take her. You know, this could be a life and death situation. We don't know what's going on. And so they take the girl, they take the guy. So again, I am left with Turtle Jansport Woman and the molestation couple behind me. And as they're gone, and as the show is coming to its ending, I just start hearing voices next to me saying, Are you high, man? How high are you, man? Just whispering to me. Once the show was over and everybody vacated the premises, I was left standing there feeling like I was violated in the creepiest way possible. And I was just hoping, I was hoping, or I am hoping, that one day I will listen to another podcast, and these two people are hosting that podcast, and they're talking about how they just trolled some random dude wearing a bandana and having the time of his life <laughs> at a Tame Paula concert during FYF Festival, because it was weird as shit. I guess really the point of the story, again, is just know how to handle your stuff. Know how to handle your drugs. If you're taking things in moderation, you know, I'll be the first one to not tell you to not do it. But I will be the first one to tell you to take care of yourself and, you know, have all the you know, your intake of vitamins and your, you know, make sure you're taking care of yourself and all that stuff. Because you do not want to end up like that girl. Because when I made eye contact with her right before she, you know, whatever happened to her. It was frightening as shit. So that's my story of that one particular moment from Tim's Fun Festival goings in Los Angeles. 
Well, that is definitely one crazy-ass story, dude. I think, at this point, we should allow that to just ruminate and move directly into the news. What do you say? Sounds good. All right. And for the record, we have no emails or Twitter uh, to mention this week. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at the SLScast and send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. And so without further ado, it is now time for the news. And uh, let's see here. Really quickly, first up from me, I've got a pair of news stories uh, all about movie about movies losing money. <clears throat> first up from Hollywood Reporter, uh, uh, which is of course HollywoodReporter.com by way of Pamela McClintock. Ghostbusters heading for a seventy million dollar plus loss sequel, unlikely. <clears throat> and in the world of gosh, we didn't see that coming. Said no one ever. News. Confronted by tepid box office for the reboot, the studio will instead focus on animated spinoffs. Yes, immediately. Uh, well, we don't need to get to that. Let's see. This. Uh, Rory Brewer said, quote, While nothing has been officially announced yet, there's no doubt in my mind it will happen, end quote. Uh, that was about whether or not a sequel would happen. The studio hasn't really said anything since then. As of, uh, as of August 7th, so uh, as of a couple weeks ago, Ghostbusters earned just under $180 million at the global box office, including $117 million domestic. The film still hasn't opened in a few markets, including France, Japan, and Mexico, but box office experts say it will have trouble getting to $225 million despite a hefty net production budget of $144 million plus a big marketing spend. The studio has said break-even would be $300 million. Sony hardly is alone in suffering from audience rejection of sequels this summer, but film chief Tom Rothman and his team, along with partner Village Roadshow, had high hopes for launching a live-action Ghostbusters quote-unquote universe. Now they are hoping... Oh, I'm sorry. They are not hoping. <laughs> now they are preparing for steep losses and an uncertain future for the franchise. Sony won't comment on whether it has banished a sequel to the Netherworld, but perhaps tellingly, a rep says the studio actively is pursuing an animated Ghostbusters feature that could hit theaters in 2019 and an animated TV series, Ghostbusters Ecto Force, which is eyeing an early 2018 bow. Both are being guided by Reitman, who firmly is back in charge of the Ghostbusters empire via Ghost Corps, a subsidiary with a mandate to expand the brand across platforms um and then so basically yeah they they didn't make enough money not enough people enjoyed the film despite its critical acclaim <sighs> um and yeah uh, and even though spoiler alert even though there's the whole zool thing as the you know stinger at the end um doesn't look like there's going to be any sequel and then of course something else not getting a sequel Warcraft! This is how much money the film will lose, even with massive success in China. This comes to us from uh, from IGN.com by way of Steve Watts. Warcraft will end up losing around $15 million less than it would have if not for a strong showing in China. Uh, Hollywood Reporter says that the film, which was budgeted at $160 million, may lose $30 to $40 million, according to industry execs, but a digital rights deal for China at the unusually high amount of $24 million and a $20 million merchandising pact help offset the loss. Though the 
the loss is smaller than expected after a dismal domestic showing. It is still a deficit. The U.S. release bombed, making only $46.6 million. The rest of its total, $430 million global uh, gross, came from international sales, and more than half of that was from China alone. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Both of those articles, there is still more to them. Please go and check them out at HollywoodReporter.com and IGN.com, respectively, for Ghostbusters and War- and Warcraft movies. Um, yeah, even though it did really well in China, I think, based on its success in China, I think it's still probably got a shot at a sequel, but it will probably just be more heavily geared toward the international markets with us not even really in mind uh tim thoughts questions comments concerns on either of these movies i know we did not really cover warcraft but uh did you see War- did, did you see warcraft uh my my uh stepdad went and saw uh warcraft the same night i went and saw ghostbusters so we rode up to the movie theater together <laughs> and he went and saw warcraft while i went and saw uh ghostbusters oh good so we didn't do a double feature of both warcraft and ghostbusters because you know that that could have happened you, that was prime opportunity to, for you to have seen both movies at once. Ugh, that's all right. Did he like it, though? He did. He did. But he is very much into that. Um, he, he's into that kind of storytelling. He loves high fantasy and everything like that. Um, he said that some of the storytelling was kind of difficult to keep up with, but he thought that it was still a lot of fun to watch. Really? Yeah, I kind of heard that, too, from big fans of Warcraft that... You know, but given its fair, flaws, he, right? He, but to be fair, it's not—he's not a World of Warcraft fan, uh, nor is he a Blizzard fan. He did actually way, 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 way back in the day. He did actually pick up the first Warcraft RTS games. Um, I remember those being on our on our little 386 way back when 386 46 way back in the day. Um, but uh, yeah, so he has no idea about World of Warcraft or anything like that. But he loves anything to do with orcs and. Uh, you know, orcs, wizards, mages, you shall not pass, and all that kind of crap. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, well, it doesn't. What do so- you got for us, sir? Hmm. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. no, no. I was going to say that to me, at least, Ghostbusters. If they wanted to make a sequel to Ghostbusters, then I don't think they should have gone as big as they did with the first one. I, I was really hoping they would have kept it. Small, and so I think with them not being able to do another Ghostbusters movie because of all the money that they've lacked, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad. So maybe in another twenty years they'll do something different. But apparently we are going to be getting a new uh, Ghostbusters cartoon, like a series in the coming. Right. That was what. Uh, I, yeah, that was what uh, I, Ivan Reitman. He's actually trying to guide that stuff, the Ecto Force stuff, and everything, and all of that stuff is supposed to spin off into. Uh, commercial properties that can be made into movies and also be, you know, maybe we get another The Real Ghostbusters kind of thing. So, anyways, what do you got there for us, sir? All right, first off from TheGuardian.com, adult animation sausage party given kids film rating in Sweden. That's right, you heard that right. The Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg's salty comedy, which features foodstuffs taking drugs and having sex, could be seen by children as young as seven. Sausage Party Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg's very adult animation about a Frankfurter called Franks 
efforts to stuff himself into Brenda the Bun has been given an 11 rating in Sweden, meaning viewers as young as 7 can see it when accompanied by a grown-up. The film centers on, uh, centers on foodstuffs having a crisis of faith after realizing that human beings are not gods waiting to whisk them away to the great beyond, but are simply hungry. Featuring the voices of Rogan, Kristen Wiig, Jonah Hill, and Ed Norton, it was given a 15 certificate in the UK as it features scenes of drug-taking, oral sex, anal sex, racial slurs, and even potential rape. Sausage Party is not a family film, uh, says one Swedish cinema website. It's not the first time the film has been seen by children. Back in June, a cinema in California accidentally screened the Sausage Party trailer to families waiting to watch the Disney Pixar adventure Finding Dory. The trailer, which heavily features the word fuck, also included a scene in which a pair of baby carrots are eaten. Quote, they're eating fucking children, end quote. One character screams. The film's more risque elements have been highlighted by a number of media monitoring monitoring sites, including one that has outlined the adult content in explicit detail. One note reads, quote, A line of dancing olives bends over away from the camera to expose their pit holes, end quote. <laughs> uh, and actually, that outlining of the adult content in explicit detail can be found... Oh, well, it's actually... Pulled up um, independent.co.uk website, but it's from an advisory website like Kids in Mind or something like that. And what would be worse than watching this movie with their kids is reading what makes this movie so bad for your kids to your kids. Because it says things like, quote, a male douche bottle sucks the juice out from between the legs of a male juice box. A female taco sucks the bottom part of a bun between the bun's legs. A bun falls onto a hot dog and they separate nervously as another character tells the bun and hot dog that they are morally loose, <laughs> end quote. Another one is that a uh, a woman in a kitchen peels a screaming potato and sticks him into boiling water as other groceries set, shout in fear. And the woman picks up two baby carrots and eats them. We see them screaming inside her mouth as she chews. Because <laughs> when you read that to your kids, they're not going to be envisioning Disney Pixar. They're going to be envisioning like real, they're going to be associating that with real things, probably more humanistic Things with human, uh, more human qualities than actually uh, Disney and Pixar qualities. But I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, again, that was Guardian.com, adult animation, sausage party, given kids, film rating in Sweden. Next up, from the HollywoodReporter.com, 3D Jason Bourne causes nausea, protest in China. This is written by Patrick Brzezeski, and it says this. Universal Pictures created an exclusive 3D version of the film for select Asian markets, but many moviegoers say the format makes for a queasy mix with Paul Greengrass's handled camera work and frenetic editing style. Universal Pictures' Jason Bourne is attracting attention on Chinese social media for all the wrong reasons. The film debuted Tuesday to an impressive 11.8 million bucks, a single-day high for the Bourne franchise in China, but complaints about a, quote, special, end quote, 3D conversion of the film soon began to proliferate. On Wednesday, many Chinese moviegoers alleged that the 3D version of Jason Bourne had left them feeling dizzy and nauseous, 
Others soon joined the chorus to complain that it was too difficult to see the original 2D version as cinemas were overwhelmingly screening the 3D option. Quote, I really felt sick during the fight scenes when I watched it in 3D, end quote, posted a user named Azumbi on Weibo, a Chinese social media service, adding, quote, it was like a low-budget movie I needed to watch again in 2D, end quote. 3D is a dominant cinema format in China. The vast majority of China's estimated 37,000 to 39,000 movie screens were built over the past decade, and some 80% were equipped with 3D projection technology. Local moviegoers have lapped up 3D films, turning out in fours for effects-heavy 3D fares since Avatar became a phenomenon in China in 2007. Hollywood and local distributors and exhibitors have been happy to encourage the market's penchant for premium-priced 3D tickets. Uh, the article does go on from there. Um, as we all know by now, China is a huge market. Asia itself is a huge market for Hollywood films. Soon, they're going to be the biggest draw when it comes to movies. And Hollywood knows this. So if they can do anything to get more money, because really it seems like the movie theater companies out there has Hollywood buy the balls, they're going to have to double over and do things like converting freaking Jason Bourne into a 3D film. I couldn't imagine it being better than the original 3D conversion of the Clash of the Titans movie that came out back in 2009, 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009, or whenever it came out. It's got to be so much worse, because the movie, it's not aesthetically pleasing in the first place. It's all just quick cuts, camera movements, and unfathomable, unfathomable visionary cues. What do you think, Matt? Do you have any comments, questions, concerns with either of these films? Would you let your children watch Sausage Party at the movie theater in Sweden? Well, no, I mean, okay, we have to understand there's two two different things as a culture. Uh, in culture, we, our, our culture, we're, we're very uh, still, even with all of the stuff that's out there, uh, we're still pretty, you know, conservative or whatever when it comes to the glorification of sex and in, in, in terms of what our kids can see and in europe it's a lot more um it, you know it's a lot more open about that kind of stuff on the flip side of that we're all about blow shit up and they are not so you know they don't get violence in their movies for kids we get tom and jerry or you know blowing shit up and killing each other and stuff like that and whatever else Voltron right that's been remade and How to Tame Your Dragon which is all about blowing up other people's stuff and whatnot so it's just the way the cultural thing is and so yeah and what come on what eleven year old boy do you know that wouldn't be in there making those jokes in fourth and fifth grade anyway and drawing those kinds of pictures and laughing and making that stupid yuck yuck stuff. Of course, that's that kind of humor anyway. So, sure, I can see how that how <laughs> no Matt, you're some, just twisted. <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, I, so I could totally see how somewhere in Europe would let eleven year olds go see it. But in defense of how stupid and ridiculous Americans are, and us with our stupid fucking R ratings and everything, you know. Today, I could take my five-year-old, my four-year-old, I could take my four-year-old to go and see um, Sausage Party tomorrow. 
I could do that at any time because it says under 17 has to come in with an adult, a guardian or, adult, or basically an adult. So it, it's not like people can't get around an R rating today if they want to. It's just culturally that's how we look at it. And in terms of uh, China, yeah, okay. that I feel bad for them, but it's not like they couldn't just wait a couple of days and go eventually see a, two, uh, a 2D version of the movie well i think that's it, a culture thing also like like the, the the factory workers and whatnot like their time to go to the movies for a lot of them is like friday saturday night and as it's, it's so it's just interesting it's interesting reading about all this stuff because i for one i mean i then again i've been watching born for you know since they first since the first one came out you know, so I already kind of knew what to expect, and I would know not to go see it in 3D. So I just kind of wonder if people who, with Hollywood kind of blowing up and the idea of 3D blowing up and being something relatively new over there, that they, I'm sure they probably just thought like, ooh, the idea of seeing Jason Bourne, Matt Damon in 3D would be so cool. But this Paul Greengrass guy, I'm sure he can bring something to the table. <laughs> he did in the form of throwing up. Well, let's see here. This is going to be my last piece of news here from NewYorkTimes.com by way of Brooks Barnes and Kara Buckley. The Birth of a Nation, Nate Parker's heralded film, is now cloaked in controversy. And if you have not heard of this film, um, and truth be told, you more than likely haven't, because the film you might be thinking of if you are a movie buff is not this film. Um, the Birth of a Nation, traditionally known, is... Um, what, what, what's his name? D.B. Cooper? No, not Cooper. The guy who stole the gold and... Yeah. You're talking about D.W. Griffith? D.W. Griffith, thank you. Yeah, so D.W. Uh, Griffith's Birth of a Nation is considered a cinematic, cinematic masterpiece in terms of scope, style, technology, cinematography, in terms of actual movie making. Uh, unfortunately, its subject matter is completely uh, hideous um, and is credited with bringing back, bringing back the KKK because it was pretty much dead until this movie came out. Now, fast forward to 2016, and we have uh, filmmaker Nate Parker doing uh, something in the same vein in terms of subject matter, also called The Birth of a Nation. But in no way, shape, or form is it a remake or even tied to D.W. Griffith's project. So, and it's supposed to be an amazing film. All right, that's the setup here for you. Now, check it out. From Los Angeles, it was supposed to be a corrective to hashtag Oscars so white, the blistering story of a slave revolt that was directed and written by a black artist, Nate Parker, who also stars in the lead role. The Birth of a Nation had been positioned as a balm for an industry long criticized for sidelining minorities. Instead, the film has become clouded by the discourse of tragic details in a nearly two-decade-old case in which Mr. Parker was accused and later acquitted of raping a fellow student while at Penn State. The episode was already known, including by the studio backing the film. But on uh, Tuesday, Variety gave it new life by revealing that Mr. Parker's accuser committed suicide in 2012 at the age of 30. I would like to point out that this article was released on August 17th, uh, which means that Variety's information was from as early as August 16th. 
Uh, let's see here. That disclosure, combined with the revelation of explicit details from the case and a Facebook post by Mr. Parker saying that he had not known about the suicide and was filled with sorrow, prompted a torrent of vitriol against Mr. Parker, Lawrence, Mr. Parker on social media. It also sent Fox Searchlight, which paid a record $17.5 million to acquire The Birth of a Nation, into battle position. There were calls to boycott the film, and in Los Angeles, a smattering of posters for The Birth of a Nation depicted Mr. Parker as the rebellion leader Nat Turner were altered to read Rapist by a street artist. Meanwhile, prominent figures like Spike Lee, who had championed the film, went silent, speaking volumes. And the controversy may worsen, as more people will discover when they see the film, which is scheduled to open October 7th in more than 1,500 theaters. Mr. Parker's script uses gang rape as a central story point, though the attack is not explicitly shown. The film looks at the slave revolt Turner led in Virginia in 1831, but a storytelling device, the brutal assault by white men on Turner's wife, feeds a rage that sets the rebellion in motion. Members of Mr. Parker's team of Hollywood advisors also privately worried on Wednesday that additional details about the 1999 case, including that his accuser was white, could emerge as new flashpoints. Until now, The Birth of a Nation has been the leading Oscar contender. Discussing awards may seem in poor taste, especially in light of the rape case, but it is impossible to separate the Oscars from Mr. Parker's film. Four longtime awards strategists, speaking on the condition of anonymity because of the supercharged nature of the controversy, said in interviews that, at least as things stood on Wednesday, The Birth of a Nation was gravely damaged as an awards prospect. Now, I'm going to start there. That is about the first third of the article. Um, and it does go on to get into a little bit more of the nuances behind it, including a, a little bit more about Nate Parker's position, about um, post the suicide, uh, a little bit more about the case, and a little bit more about where Fox Searchlight stands and stuff like that. So please, 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 NewYorkTimes.com, uh, check that out. Birth of a Nation, Nate Parker's heralded film is now cloaked in controversy by Brooks Barnes and Cara, Bu um, Cara or Cara Buckley. Um, this is the problem with these kinds of allegations. Um, you, people just can't seem to get a pass. And I don't mean that in terms of, and I'm going to couch this very carefully because I don't want the quote to be like, what? This should get a pass? No. This is one of those things where no one, no, you can't make a right move. All of your choices are bad. You've had a situation that was devastating um, in, in one way or another to all parties involved. Now, the degree of devastation cannot be fathomed, especially by the person who brought the case in the first place. Um, because right, wrong, indifferent, that person didn't bring it as folly it made it all the way to court which means there had to be something there for the for the prosecutors to go on um and there's that's incalculable you've had someone like nate parker who had to go through this and was clearly acquitted technicality we don't know it doesn't say in there i'm not going to go and dig it up um and so this guy's life has been devastated too because no matter what the outcome was of the case, he's now forever tarnished as someone who was involved in a rape case. doesn't matter that he was acquitted. 
His name is tied to it. His guilt by association, as far as the general public is concerned, because no one else will bother to go in there and look at it again. So now when you have this new information that the person passed away who accused him of it, and especially in light of race, he can't not say anything. Because if he doesn't say, you don't care about this person, how, you know, look what you did to her. But then if he says, oh my gosh, I'm so devastated about this loss. Um, oh, well, you heartless motherfucker. You're the one that did it to her. Do you see how, do you see? That's why I was saying the, the scope is just, you just can't touch it. Um, we have had a lot of setbacks in terms of, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, blah, 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 what have you ever. All of these things that have come and start, and have been very divisive to our culture as of late. And including Oscar So White. It's just completely devastating because you have nowhere to go. You just don't have anywhere to go. And these things are so incredibly sad. But at the same time, we, we are where we are. So now you've got people who are like, man, uh, I can't, I can't vote for this movie because if I vote for this movie, it's like I'm backing a rapist. But he didn't get, but he wasn't convicted of rape. Well, he should have been, but he wasn't. Do you see how this circular logic just continues to spiral down the drain? We get nowhere. Um, but at the same time, people have to be able to move forward with their lives. So what do we, so what do we do? Um, do we, do we let our criminal justice system stand as it does and see the movie and celebrate the movie for what it is? Um, does what Nate Parker, uh, had to what do, do does his experience and his involvement should it color our perceptions of what we see should it should we bear that in mind when we're trying to figure out whether or not this film is any good that i mean it's just really difficult and it's really sad it's a bad situation all the way around um, and I've, I, for one, I want to see this movie, um, not just as a, you know, a history major, not just as someone who is fascinated by this, but as someone who celebrates how far we've come, not that we don't have a ways to go, but as someone who uses pieces like this as a reminder of why we need to keep up and fight the good fight and not give up. And yet, can you do that anymore? Is it fair to not do that anymore? Because of what Nate Parker may or may not have done, regardless of exoneration. And shouldn't exoneration matter? I mean, this is just a whole lot of shit. A whole lot of shit. What do you think, Tim? I've, I've like rallied, railed on this for 10 minutes now. I'm so sorry. I know this was important to you as well. What do, what do you have to say? Where, what are your thoughts? It's hard to say. I mean, I don't know the guy. I didn't go to any of the trials or whatever. You know, like, I just don't know. It's a lot of he said this, she said this, this person said that this person did that. 
You just don't know. And if he didn't get convicted of anything, I can't. I, I don't know. Like, that's not going to keep me from seeing this movie. You know, it's like the whole Woody Allen thing. Like, the whole Woody Allen thing from some some time ago. People People like to talk. People like to make things out of anything, especially with things like this, because we all have a voice. Various groups have a voice. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I think that's a great thing. But we just need to keep certain things in mind. And I think that's what nobody likes to do. And it shows. I don't know. That's that's as much uh, politics I'll get into right now. But I, I guess I agree with you in short. It's just a really tough situation all, sure. the, all the way around. And I mean, and so, and the thing is, is that past experiences both make the point to both sides, right? We, uh, for example, we take, um, uh, Woody Allen, right? Um, people have still continued with Woody Allen, but there, are, and, but there are people who still throw that in his face, even 20 years later. Uh, Roman Polanski, right? Uh, with the whole, hot tub situation from 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Um, And you have two different factions on that as well. So it's just something that just never goes away. And this is why it's so hard when it comes to these, this particular issue, um, sexual assault, because we both, we both, Everybody wants for justice to occur, and also everybody wants for life to go on. And the thing is, is that while they don't necessarily have to be mutually mutually exclusive, a lot of times they are. And yet both still happen. So, kind of a bummer to end our news on that note well i guess we still have one other thing we need to mention yeah but i that's kind of a bummer also yes so since we've really gone down on a downswing let's end the news on the biggest downswing of all go ahead tim bring us bring us home with our sad sad news um i i don't have any article or anything like that pulled up but as i'm sure all of you knew this past was it sunday night we're, I know we're recording on Monday night right now, but it was like late last night at the age of 83, I believe. Um, uh, early this morning. Early this it morning. Was, so early yes. this morning, August 29th, 29th August, Gene yes. Wilder passed away uh, due to, it was his Alzheimer's, right? Uh, Complications from here. Alzheimer's? Yes, or? yes. Uh, it says here, I'm, I've got the, again, New York Times pulled up uh, by way of Daniel Lewis. Um it says here, do 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 do. Pardon me, I'm sorry. Uh, died early. Gene Wilder died early Monday morning at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. He was 83. A nephew, the filmmaker Jordan Walker Perlman, confirmed his death in a statement saying the cause was complications of Alzheimer's disease. And well, I guess we'll be honoring him more so next week with our three squared. That is correct. Uh, <laughs> as a as a uh, sneak preview for next week's bonus segment, our three squared is going to be. Uh, our favorite Gene Wilder films. So, cool. Um, And again, that is the end of the news, and hopefully bringing us back into a little bit of better merriment. 
will be Thirty Squared. Yes. All right. So this time on Three Squared, we are covering our picks for the worst films produced and or distributed. <laughs> As it turns out, Matt may or may not have misunderstood the assignment. Produced or and or distributed by Paramount Pictures. Um, I have three movies to talk about. I am going to um, do them in chronological order because I believe that um, we we should. I, I think that uh, we absolutely should do them in chronological order because for me, these are all, all three of these movies broke my damn heart. Just broke my heart because they're so, so abysmal. First up from 1989, Star Trek, The Final Frontier. Yes, after the success of Leonard Nimoy directing some uh, Star Trek action, William Shatner said, well, shit. I can direct. And then we subsequently found out that no, he cannot. Uh, this is, of course, the fifth film. And thank God it wasn't the last, even though it's called The Final Frontier. It's the fifth film in the Star Trek uh, original series cast timeline for films. And uh, follows the adventures of an aging crew of the Enterprise as they go in search of what they believe at the time to be god more or less um and uh it, it is that journey of betterment uh through the false prophet that brings them to the final frontier uh this movie is abysmal terrible terrible special effects horrid horrid directing because all of the characterizations it's like you know these people and you love these people but you're ask, constantly asking yourself what the fuck are you doing and why are you saying it like that the whole, that's pretty much the whole movie. You're just constantly going, what the fuck are you doing? And why are you saying it like that? Um, the writing is pretty dull. It's pretty dull and kind of dumb, but the action and the events that follow it, I mean, come on, Uhura during a feather dance? Really? Really? Look, at no doubt. Original series Uhura, super fucking hot. No, there, there, there's no way you can't say that she wasn't. And she has aged beautifully, but at the same time, even by 1989 standards, that was 25 years later, folks. 25 years later, I'm not buying the. I'm not buying. I'm just not buying the feather dance. Um, moving on to 2008 would be another series destroyer for me. I kind of pretend like it doesn't exist. It's kind of fun um, because there hasn't been anything to replace it yet. See, with Star Trek V. If that had been the end, most people would probably say, nope, there was only four original series Star Trek, but we got six. We got six to redeem five. So you can just kind of look at five and go, ah, what a disappointment. But we ended well. With Indiana Jones, see, with Indiana Jones, we waited 19 years for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. We waited, we waited 19 fucking years for people to try and introduce Nuke the Fridge as a replacement for Jumping the Shark, right? Um, and much like trying to replace Jumping the Shark and Nuke the Fridge, uh, it, Nuke the Fridge didn't work out very well either. Um, and this, of course, is in reference to the scene 
where Indy protects himself in a lead line refrigerator that then, you know, is blasted out of a nuclear test zone. <laughs> and he somehow manages to survive. Also, it manages to open. <laughs> because apparently in the 50s, they believed in safety. And you should be able to get out of a fridge that you've locked yourself into. Right. And that's just the beginning of that movie. Uh, the, the stupid ultimate sword fight at the end. The whole idea of aliens and stuff like that. It's like, great, okay, ancient aliens, good. I'm glad that History Channel uh, was the w w was the sponsor for this particular installment in, in the Anne Jones series. Also, the attempt at... Um, Passing the torch to Shia LaBeouf as as the next indie. Okay, um, I get what this movie was trying to do, but it was just done. It was just so poorly executed, so so poorly executed. And last but not least, from 2010, this one tried to start a franchise, and instead destroyed everyone's dreams. From M Night Shyamalan. The last fucking airbender. No, this should have been, this should have been called the last fucking film for M. Night Shyamalan. That's what this should have been called. I was someone who lived and breathed Avatar. It was something, one of the few things that I shared in common with my son. It was also something that was just absolutely amazing, a cultural phenomenon for its time and really showed kids and teens in that age what anime was, what, what, People who consumed anime and loved all the stuff that the Japanese had brought to this medium could do in America. And to celebrate it, we get a movie. We get this. Which tries to sum up the first season of Avatar. Um... And does it just so terribly, terribly, terribly. And forget the whitewashing, because you know what? As much as people want to bash the whitewashing um, on this film, I can kind of halfway understand it because of the way that the visuals in the, in the, in the, in the actual series were. I could kind of see how you might be able to construe that as not the proper ethnicities for the most part. Not everywhere, but for that, so I kind of, I could kind of give it a pass on that. This, however, just the worst fucking writing I've ever seen. It's like they found kids who couldn't act. Like, I understand that you want to try and get some of the martial arts aspect right, but all you had to do was look at the production notes of the series, because when you watch the animations in the fucking series, they got it right. How come you can't do it right? And then the special effects. Oh, God, special effects. And the 3D. Oh, the 3D was so bad. I remember going and watching this in 3D and IMAX, and people were dressed up. There were people who were dressed up like Aang and dressed up like Zuko. And so many people who uh, who, who were just so into it. And, of course... My favorite character of Uncle Iroh, right? I mean, you have so many people, and then you watch this movie, and it was like, it was dead quiet. It was truly dead quiet. You could hear crickets by the time this movie was over. Because people were like, what the fuck did you do to my show? So, yeah, the three worst Paramount Pictures uh, produced and or distributed by Paramount Pictures. The three worst... 
1989's Star Trek V The Final Frontier, 2008's Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and 2010's The Last Airbender. What do you got, Tim? Alrighty, so three bad Paramount movies. This was kind of difficult. I went. I wanted to try to find some older movies, but as I went back and was looking at the lists from the you know 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even some of the 90s, Paramount has come out with some great movies. Many of my favorites, like Chinatown, Catch 22, they produced those, including some like iconic horror films. You know, like Chucky. <laughs> you know, like even though you might watch Chucky now and you might not, you know, give a shit about it, but. For its time, you know, in a way it's iconic, though it's bad. So I was trying to stay away from things that, just because it was my personal preference, I didn't like it. But just all around, generally speaking, it's just a bad freaking movie. Kind of like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, because you hear more bad about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull than you do good, for the most part. Even though I kind of, I, I, I kind of like, kind of like it. But anyways, I'm going to start off with my throwaway, throwaway one, and it is from 2009, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Back in 07, when we got the first Transformers movie that, well, only Michael Bay has been directing him so far, and we're freaking four movies in, uh, five movies in now, yeah, they're making the fifth one. It was interesting because we all wanted to see a live-action Transformers movie. And I remember hearing about it, seeing the trailers for it, and I was amped because back in 07, you just haven't seen a movie like this quite yet. And after the first one, you've pretty much have seen all of them because every freaking Transformers movie is basically the same Transformers movie. So after the first Transformers movie, I, I mean, there was such a big hype going into it. I thought it was fine, but I wasn't head over heels about it, so I wasn't particularly looking forward to, uh, to its sequels. But when Transformers Revenge of the Fallen came out, I didn't go see it at the movie theater, but I did rent it. came out two years later in 2009, and I thought it was god-awful. And the reason why I thought this was worse, maybe not as bad as the last one that came out, Age of Extinction, it's the one that sets up all the other bad ones. All the other bad ones follows this same formula. If not this same formula, then the same formula of the first one, just with different characters in slightly different situations. But pretty much the same type of city gets destroyed in all the others. So this movie was obviously made more so than the first one. Obviously made to make money. Uh, not only at the box office, home video, or even the toys. I mean, obviously every movie is made to make money. But it's ridiculous. It's worse than Star Wars. Because actually, at least Star Wars has some kind of... Uh, it, like, it, it feels more real. You know, you know, it feels like Star Wars is trying to achieve something more other than crazy, in-your-face, just corporate greed. Like, there's more meat to those films. But Transformers felt like it was out to make money because so many people will go go and see it. They'll just throw their money at it for no reason. Why do we want to go see Transformers? Well, because we want to see it in 3D. We want to see it in IMAX. And, man, it's Optimus Prime. I just can't wait till Optimus Prime says that one cool thing at the last, like, 25 minutes of the movie before he pulls out his sword and does this. And, and Bumblebee, when Bumblebee does that cool, you know, cute, sweet little thing, and we all want to root for Bumblebee and... 
you know, he might die at the end of one of these, and we just want to look, you know, we just, we just all get caught up in these characters, but all these characters fucking suck. They're not great. What's so good about Optimus Prime in these movies? He's not the focal point. You have all these moronic character, you know, human characters that are the focal point that are there in the movie for story progression and for exposition, for delivering the exposition. And with the robots, you're given dumb robots. You're given a very stupid, stereotypical character robots, you know, like the Brooklyn-sounding robot, the you know, the hip-hop, the rapping robots, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it gets old after a while, especially this movie is, what, two hours and 32 and a half hours long? It's just over-the-top, stupid, stylized action padded by mindless, childish gags, and it's already a formulaic storytelling progression and approach. So, like I said before, really the first movie set the precedent for what every other movie will will absolutely be, but this is the one that was the worst, and they just kind of, they follow the exact same path from here on out. Again, they just blow up different things, and it features some different characters, but it's all virtually the same, and incredibly dumb, and repetitive, and exposition-filled. Like, dumb exposition. Like, I, it, I don't know. It I just wish as as much time as they put in into making the robots super stereotypical, I wish they would put that effort more into the human characters to make them more interesting, at least. Anyways, as you can tell, I don't like Transformers, period, but first on my list was Transformers Revenge of the Fallen from 2009. Next up is the uh, Fairly Brothers, the Peter and Bobby Far... or not Fairly... <laughs> The Farley Brothers remake of The Heartbreak Kid, which came out in 2007. The original film starred uh, Sybil Shepard and Charles Grodin. That came out in the 70s, I think. And if you've seen the movie, one of these movies, you know that the film follows Ben Stiller's character. In the new version, it's Ben Stiller. He plays a character named Eddie. He's been a single guy enjoying bachelorhood for many, many, many years. He meets this girl named Leela, played by Malin Ackerman, and they decide to get married. And during their honeymoon, which isn't quite going well, her goofy, quirkiness characteristics are showing, and it doesn't really sit well with Eddie. While she's confined to her bed due to a horrible sunburn, he goes out on the beach, walks around there like in Hawaii or something, and he meets Miranda, played by Michelle uh, Monaghan, and he falls for her. And basically, he sets up a love affair with her, but his wife, Leela, will not put up a fight pretty, you know, and that's kind of the, the whole setup of it. And the Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepherd movie from the 70s was based off a script by Neil Simon. And it's a, God, the, the comedy, the idea of the movie is hilarious, in my opinion, because Charles Grodin plays the character like a normal guy. He's a regular guy that all normal, decent guys that have faults can get behind and kind, and, and understand in a way, because he's the bachelor that is trying to find the perfect woman. And in order to slump back into, to go back into bachelorhood, you're really kind of pinpointing those characteristics to really kind of act off of. 
But the girl he ends up getting married to, you know, she has her characteristics are completely in your face and ridiculous and hilarious. So you kind of feel bad for the guy. But how Ben Stiller plays the movie is a fucking asshole. He's childish. He's naive. He's just kind of a nicer sounding version of a complete fucking douchebag. And you start feeling sad for the woman he marries, Leela. And on top of that, it's directed by the Farley brothers, who at the time they were still known for gross-out, over-the-top humor. Um, in this movie, it features a, a donkey show, pretty much, where I believe you see, actually see the the donkeys erect donkey schlong. Um, Jerry Stiller is in the movie. He plays a womanizing father his advice to a son is going to vegas and screwing women and having love affairs and that's the way he should live his life leela's mother turns out to be you know morbidly obese and that's what makes ben stiller's character feel a little uneasy about marrying into that family so it's a lot of inappropriate humor like that to where you don't feel bad for the character you don't feel for him you can't relate to him in in any way unless you're a fucking asshole and it takes away from what the movie is really about, like what's actually genuinely funny about the movie, and it just becomes something completely different. It's just not a good movie, and it was not a good take on the original Neil Simon script. So yeah, that was the Heartbreak Kid remake from the Farley Brothers, 2007. Uh, the final movie, lastly is Funny About Love from 1990. This is starring Gene Wilder and uh, this lady counterpart, Christine Litty. It was directed by Leonard Nimoy. Again, it came out in 1990. And by this time, Leonard Nimoy has established himself as a director. He's done Star Trek movies. He's done, He did Three Men and a Baby. So he is, in his way, competent. This movie is about Gene Wilder, and he plays Duffy Bergman uh, in his Chickies With... Their character is Meg Lloyd Bergman, and they're basically trying to have a baby. But he's older. She's a bit older. She's 40s. He's in his 50s or whatever. And they just can't get pregnant. And so both of their biological clocks are ticking, and they're really trying to have a kid. And the the take on it is that he doesn't want to have the kid. But the movie relies, like the scenes, the dialogue relies so much on these two characters to get together and fuck and have a kid together. But all these goofy things happen, you know, to where they, you know, it just never really works out. The characters don't mesh well together. You can tell that Gene Wilder really can't get into character. His He can't fall in love for this woman. Her acting isn't that great. And I don't really think it's necessarily her fault, but the dialogue and the direction. Uh, it's supposed to be a comedy drama, but it leans more into the awkward comedy, especially in how the dialogue is uh, is, 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 is given, is said by the two actors. There's a scene when... They have a set time to when they're gonna when they have to screw like twelve noon on a certain day. But Gene Wilder's character is stuck on an airplane and he gets home late. And they have a scene about that, and they you know, and it kind of goes into more of a slightly raunchier side, but without going full raunch. And it doesn't make any sense. You really can't feel sorry or feel bad for these two characters whatsoever. Another scene just happens moments later when 
they're at the sperm doctor. You know, he's getting his balls checked out by the by a doctor or whatever, and they start making jokes about his penis, saying that you can compare it to a giant redwood and stuff. It just doesn't sit well, and you think, well, it's a Gene Wilder movie. It's supposed to be funny, but it's not... It doesn't work with the direction and with the writing. It just didn't work out. So those are my three picks for bad Paramount movies. Again, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen from 2009, The Heartbreak Kid from 2007, and finally, Funny About Love from 1990. Well, that concludes this episode's Three Squared. Again, next week's bonus segment will be another Three Squared featuring our favorite performances, our favorite roles, our favorite films, uh, starring Gene Wilder. And without further ado, it is now time for... The Movies! And this week's movies are The Phenom and Imperium. Where would you like to start, sir? How about The Phenom? All right, The Phenom. Um, I don't... Yeah, okay. We have a new format. I personally will not have a spoiler section on mine. Um, I I won't either. Okay. Yeah. Um, So no spoiler section on me for... for, uh, Will you have one for Imperium then, do you think? Because I'm not going to have one for Imperium either. No, I, I don't think so. Okay, so no no worries about spoilers this week, but just so you know, we are doing a new format where we try and do a very succinct review at the beginning, um, and then if you're worried about spoilers, just check the episode description for the timestamp, you can move to the next movie. But we'll make sure to give you a brief review and a score up front, so you can do that. This time, though, we're just going to do the reviews. Yay! All right, so Phenom 2016 American sports drama film written and directed by Noah Bouchel and stars Johnny Simmons, Paul Giamatti, and Ethan Hawke. This takes us to the story of a talented young picture... Picture? A talented young... Good Lord, Matt. A talented young pitcher is struggling uh, in the majors. He gets demoted back to the minors and goes to see a sports psychologist where, of course, we find ourselves in a... Story of a young man driven by what his father had done. Both good and bad, as it were. Um, all right, so love Ethan Hawke. Love, 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 love me some Paul Giamatti. And I really think Johnny Simmons did a good job here as well. I but um I will say this movie does something great. It tells a story without being overbearing about the story it's trying to tell. It lets the characters be. Now, the problem with a movie like this is that unless you are able to take that subtlety and tie it completely together around a very solid, overarching problem, which you would think you would have in this pitcher who's trying to make it um, as a pitcher because that's all he knows. But at the same time, we can't, we can't just kind of rehash um, goodwill hunting. You know what I mean? Uh, So unless you've got a way to really solidly keep that overarching uh, storyline intact, all of these nice, simple character studies, these small moments that you have don't mean as much because, uh, because they, 
start to feel like diversions instead of bringing the narrative together as a whole. But those characters, man, those characters are good. Man, those characters are good. Um, and I don't know, you know, I spent some time with my dad this weekend and just, I don't know, maybe, maybe the timing of that and watching this, um, really had me thinking about some stuff. And I just, I loved the way that the characters performed. I loved how Ethan Hawke was. I loved, uh, how Johnny Simmons was. And I really, really loved what Paul Giamatti, I, he has this like intenseness. He has this intensity. And sometimes it seems kind of weird in certain roles. Uh, for example, um, say in um, San Andreas, sometimes the intensity just doesn't seem to match the characterization. But sometimes, oh, God, just it's, it's amazing. And this is one of those times. Um, but again, the small, the subtlety, the the simple moments that define these character studies sometimes feel like diversions instead of part of the overarching narrative. And uh, for that reason, because it's throughout the whole runtime that this happens, um, I give this 3.75 out of 5. I think this very easily could have been a 4.5 movie or higher, but those characters, uh, the, those character studies turning into diversions hurt it. So 3.75 out of 5. What do you got, Tim? I think it's a very good movie. I think it's a very good character study. And I think it's an important, I think it's an important baseball movie because it's not your typical baseball movie. All the other actors did a pretty good job, including the main guy. But I think the movie was the best. The movie was the meatiest when either Paul Giamatti or Ethan Hawke was on the screen. That alone, those two guys alone, will make any movie worth it. I think Ethan Hawke gave one of his best performances I've seen in a couple years, personally. And he's not in the movie a whole lot either. And that's a shame. I would have loved to have seen more of him. And especially by the ending, because I'm not going to say anything necessarily about the ending. But the ending of it just felt a little too forced, maybe a little too pretentious in a way. Kind of one of those fancy endings when... You really just don't know what to think about it. You know, maybe it's trying to persuade you to think about it and kind of make something up. I don't know. Uh, Matt, did you feel like that at all? Or did you actually get something out of the ending? Oh, no, I I, I, I got something out of the ending. But, but that kind of does tie into what I said. Because that is where I was saying you've got to have that strong overarching narrative. Um where if you're going to tell those stories and let and make those characters matter um it has to all add up to something right and that's where i think um that's one of the things that makes that overarching narrative uh suffer a little bit exactly so, yeah and i think if if they had a stronger lead or if he if the if the leading guy i'm sorry i don't, I don't have his name in front of me but if he uh, johnny simmons if johnny simmons played the character better to where he had that moment and that moment was i mean you could see his internal struggle throughout the entire movie but from an audience perspective it didn't really amount to much when i think it was supposed to and it was so real but i think for an audience for a film you just need something else to establish itself as a breakthrough moment 
Uh, but I still think it's a very good movie. I give it 3.5 out of 5. Uh, you just really you can't beat you know a good character movie, especially when it features both Ethan Hawke and Paul Giamatti. Indeed, indeed. All right, and that's going to leave us uh, with the final movie, Imperium, from another 2016. It's an American thriller film written and directed by Daniel Ragusi, or Ragusis, from a story by Michael German. Uh, film stars Daniel Radcliffe, Tony Collette, Tracy Letts, Nestor Carbonell, and Sam Trammell. Um, all right, so what we're doing is we're covering a guy he's um he's like an analyst or whatever play, uh Nate Foster played by Radcliffe and he goes undercover to follow a white supremacist group who's you know building a dirty bomb and of course based on true events so i'm sure at some point the fbi hired somebody to go undercover to check out the kkk or something similar all right um here's the thing with this movie I think the I think overall the acting is very decent. Um, quite frankly, a little impressed with Daniel Radcliffe's American in this one. I think he's kind of cleaned it up a bit since Horns. <laughs> Want to go back and watch that again? But um, the the problem is is that where the movie tries to be a thriller, it succeeds largely. Um, but where the movie tries to be preachy, it fails. Um, I get that nobody wants to be a racist. I get that neo-Nazis are bad. And I get that, uh, we're trying to find the, the easy universal bad guy right now. And of course, when all else fails, do Nazis. Um, but the problem is, is that they couch a lot of this stuff in right wing fundamentalism and right-wing religious extremism and stuff like that um and for me it's just a little tired i'm tired of it seriously uh, you know it's kind of like the person who goes on facebook or on twitter or on instagram or whatever their social media methods of choice and brags about how stupid anybody who is right-wing this or right-wing that is it's low-hanging fruit people can we can we get something a little more complex? Can we get something with a little more meat to it? Um, and that's what this movie does. When it's being preachy, eh, okay, we get it, duh, right-wing extremism is bad. Um, but not everything fits that category. And so they try and shoehorn it. And how do they do that? Oh, it's real simple. We'll just pick on Nazis. I, and, it, and for me, I just couldn't stand it. It's just, I'm done. I'm over it. It's happened already. Thanks. But when it tries to be a thriller and instead just gets into the underlying aspects of the organization itself and how the people decide whether or not to trust and hold on to that trust or decide when to lose that trust and how Daniel Radcliffe has to make that happen in the undercover aspect of things, that's where the thriller kicks in. Who's really doing what? Who's really pulling the strings? How and why are they doing that? And where is Nate going to fit as he's trying to navigate? All of that, really, really good. Excellent thriller. Really bad at the preaching. I think that in terms of being able to enjoy it for its aspects of a thriller, I think you will do that. I think anybody looking for something serious and the fodder behind it will not. Consequently, three stars. I like it. 
I'm just overall, I'm just over the subtext. I'm, I'm over the subtext already, but it's a very decent thriller. Three stars. Personally, I think overall this is a better movie than The Phenom. The reason why I say that, because the movie works, and it's more of a thriller. I think it's trying to be more of a thriller. At least that's what I interpreted it as. But you cannot, a movie, this movie in particular, you know, it tries to be, I think it's trying too hard to be excellent and, you know, well-established or well-rooted in racy politics or, you know, racy subject matter, you know, in this instance, you know, skinheads and extremism and whatnot. But it cannot succeed in all of that as American History X with Edward Norton, you know, how that movie succeeded back in uh, 15 years ago, 15, 16, 16, 17 years ago now when it came out. American History X, of course, is more of a drama, not necessarily a thriller, but it's an excellent drama with thriller elements to it. And I didn't necessarily want to see that in this film, but due to the subject matter and due to, I felt that what they were trying to accomplish, it definitely could have used some of those dramatic elements. I understand this movie was made on a limited budget. You can tell in some of the more action-y scenes, like the beginning, and as the movie goes on when they're trying to escape a riot in a car, how it's shot in the number of extras that they feature, it's pretty it's pretty limited. So you can tell they were on a on a budget, but they did have excellent actors. You have Daniel Radcliffe, Tony Collette, and everybody else in the movie were perfect. And I think that's where this movie succeeds over Fien- the Phenom is in the acting, the all-around acting department. But it fails again in the dramatic structure. But it does, like what Matt was saying before, succeed in its thriller uh, aspects. So uh, with this movie, I sit at four out of five. Man, I just, I really loved, there's a twist, guys. There's a good twist kind of close to the end of the movie. You know, once you kind of figure out what direction this movie is is heading into. Overall, I, I wasn't really satisfied with the ending of the movie, but... For some weird reason, you know, it's just one of those movies to where I was able to forgive a number of the imperfect qualities. So I sit at four out of five on Imperium. Right on. Okay, well, next week, our movies are going to be Don't Breathe, the surprise hit uh, in the theaters, the horror flick, and Bloodfather, which is available on VOD. And I think that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, as always, always you can subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to daniel radcliffe i get to say this i know i'm not a coal miner but i do long hours and i never complain and there is nowhere else i'd rather be so yeah that's how i define myself i want to do it right and prove people wrong once and for all about the myth of child stars take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>